There are a lot of clichés in the world of food. It can be seasonal, local, ethical, sustainable, rustic, simple, humble, single origin. They are terms that, that maybe obscure and mystify a little bit more than they actually describe. Uh, but is there anything bigger in this selection uh, than that word authenticity, especially when it's applied to, to national or regional dishes? We'd love a thin crust Neapolitan pizza with Samizano tomatoes, buffalo mozzarella, wisps of wilted basil. So authentic. Uh, and and we watch we watch as, as chefs travel to Japan in search of authentic ramen. How did these dishes become so bound up with national identity? And how does a, a national cuisine or national food culture come to be in the first place? And are they, in fact, real? Anya von Bremsen is a, a three-time James Beard Award winner, a food writer who went on a, a journey to attempt to answer some of these tricky questions. And her, her latest book, The Result of These Inquiries, is National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History and the Meaning of Home. Anya, Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. No, I think you're going to you're going to bust our preconceptions. You're going to disappoint us. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. It's complicated. <laughs> this is if, if you want the one word answer to eternal questions. Uh, nothing is what it seems, and yet everything is real. Uh, not to sound too metaphysical, but what is authenticity in this day and age of absolute and utter globalization? When we can have anything on our phone, mm -hmm. we can have some grandma in the remote jungle, you know, doing a TikTok video uh, about some dish. Is that real? Is that authentic? So uh, I try to narrow down my quest and just look at some of the best known, best loved dishes, uh, such as pizza in Naples, ramen, and also cooked rice, gohan in Japan, the tapas tradition in Spain. In the heart of Andalusia, I went Andalusia, as I say, I went to Seville. Then I looked for the Ottoman origin of meze. In Istanbul, where I have a home, I made tortillas and mole in Oaxaca, which is really the heart of indigenous Mexico. And then for the epilogue of the book, which was extremely unexpected and extremely tragic for me, I pondered uh, the whole question of borscht, the beet soup, the Slavic beet soup that Ukraine and Russia dispute mm. and, uh, you know, against this backdrop of the horrible war. And uh, and the answers were always surprising and interesting because the whole idea of nation and national, we tend to forget we take, uh, that they're very recent. That, well, that's a critical part of this. And, and, and we'll, we'll step through some of those case studies, because as you say, the, the outcomes are, are fascinating and surprising in turn. Perhaps to, to stay with the, the generality of this for a moment, and that, that notion within a globalised world, that the place in which we are bound by so much ubiquitous culture, that idea of trying to preserve something unique to ourselves nationally, that, that, that sense of authenticity, it's a very important part of, of self-identification. Oh, absolutely, and I think it's a, it's it's a reverse side uh, of globalization. They go hand in hand because the more globalized 
the world gets, the more these dishes, you know, become diffused. I mean, pizza, God, you know, everyone makes it, right? Everyone mm. eats it. The more our inner protective mechanisms uh, kind of spring into action and also on the national and regional and institutional levels. Uh, the Neapolitans suddenly want to protect their pizza. The Japanese want to assert that ramen is part of the cool Japan brand. Uh, there's a lot of money and marketing that goes into creating national identities uh, besides sheer sort of grassroots patriotism. So when I say it's complicated, it really is. Uh, but it's also so fascinating. And this journey has been incredible. Would you, And you're ideally placed personally in, in, to, to undertake this, this study. In, in your book, you describe yourself as a Jewish-Russian-American national born in a despotic imperium long deleted from maps. You're, you're such a modern entity, Anya. Well, I mean, that's what I thought. You know, believe it or not, I even lived in Australia for a couple of years in Melbourne in the early 90s. So, but, you know, this this is the thing. When you're such a globalized person, and I'm not unique, most of the people, you know, migrate, look at any big city, people come and go. And especially now, post-pandemic in the age of digital nomadism, uh, hmm. who is to say that you are bound to any place? And yet this, you know, this nomadic condition uh, makes us crave some kind of roots. It makes us crave our identity. And this is really uh, telling in, in terms of how we think of our foods. On the one hand, we can have sushi in, in Istanbul and, you know, pizza, wherever, you know, on the opposite side of the globe and in some small town in Uzbekistan, which, of course, you'll find pizza there. Um, at the same time, we want to tie food to place. We want to look for the roots. Uh, so as I say, globalization and localization and localism, they kind of go hand in hand. They feed off each other. Tell me the story of Margarita Pizza. Oh, that's a brilliant story. <laughs> so I go to Naples. I want to learn how to make pizza. I want to learn every uh, legend about the origin of pizza. I talked to most important pizzaioli and historians. And the whole story about Margarita Pizza that in the end of the 19th century in Naples, because pizza is an indelibly Neapolitan mm -hmm. dish. This is one dish that you can't dispute. Uh, the Queen Margarita of Savoy orders a pizza. Uh <laughs> Who, you know, she just comes from the north, you know, Italy is in the state of post-unification, so she wants to kind of show that she's a woman of the people. And, you know, this famous pizzaiola, Esposito, delivers her pizza, and it has this patriotic scheme of the, Neapol of, of the national flag, the green of the basil, the red of the tomato, the white of the mozzarella. And she so loves it, she allows it to be named after her. <laughs> and this is Pizza Margarita. And part of it is true, she did come to Naples and it was a time of cholera. Of course, historians, and this there's a document that hangs in this Pizzeria Brandi in Naples, you know, which was run by the pizzaiolo who delivered the pizza. And it says, well, you know, she loved the pizza and it happened. But in fact, a famous historian from Harvard did the whole forensic study of the document. And of course, it's not authentic. And there is, in fact, no real mention of Pizza Margarita until the 1930s. <laughs> so this whole incident turns out to be a marketing ploy by this pizzeria. And it also is convenient for the uh, unification of Italy, that agenda of the Savoy 
kings, monarchs mm. who are from the north, that sort of trying to show that you know there are people of uh, them, you know, the royalty of the people, and they love pizza like as much as everything else. But the interesting thing about pizza, which would take a such an Italian dish. Let's remember, there's no Italy until the 1860s, right? Yes. Until the unification. Italy is just a collection of different duchies, uh, principalities, different dialects. Pizza is indelible to Naples. And it's a, really the product of the spectacular overcrowding of the city. 19th century Naples is, uh, I think, 10 times the urban density of Victorian London. Hugely overcrowded. Mm. Pizza is this cheap survival food. And it's really scorned by Northern Italians. Uh, you know, Carlo Collodi, the creator of Pinocchio, he goes to Naples and said, what is pizza? It's complicated filth. This is how he calls it. It's, you know, end, end of 19th century. So until the early 20th century, pizza is either completely unknown outside of Naples and the Northern Italians who do taste, they just pour dirt in it. So there you go. And you can arguably say that it's the Italian out-migration which is one of the largest in history mm. at the end of the 19th century. The Italians settle in the Americas. I mean, some came to Australia as well. And they sort of band together as Italians from Calabrians, Neapolitans, Sicilians, all those different identities. They start opening pizzerias and pizza takes off. And suddenly it becomes respected in Italy as well. So not really until the 20th century does it become a national dish of Italy. This is why I think it's such a fascinating story, because it's it's the, the, the whole margarita thing. Is a, it's an overcomplication, but at the same time, it's an attempt to reclaim something, to reclaim something which is, yes, obviously inherently of that place, uh, but is, has, has drifted off. The nature of that place itself has changed. So we have to, we have to create a... A story which somehow embodies all of that, even even when the thing is just you know can be can be carbon dated to this place. It's it's so tied to it, but somehow you yeah. need the you need the fable. You need the urban legends and the fables. They thrive for their own reason, and that's a whole different story. Again, coming back to the issue that it's complicated. Yes, the world needs that story, and even serious scholars pick up on that story. Um, and it doesn't doesn't matter that it's authentic or not authentic. What is authentic? Oh, there's a question. What, what, what's what's <laughs> what's not authentic? I think it, it takes us to another dish. Is is ramen and the legend attached to it. I'm, I'm astounded at the truth of this story. Do tell. Well, ramen, uh, I don't think it's a big secret, just people don't think about it, that ramen is obviously a Chinese-originated dish uh, from Lamian, Chinese noodles, and it came to, Chi to Japan uh, through the treaty ports, like Nagasaki, for instance, where there were a lot of Chinese and uh, it went from being a scorned dish of Chinese migrant workers to something that became acceptable in Japan and even thrived. And that starts happening in the interwar period, mm. right? Between the First and the Second World War, that it stops, you know, it kind of leaves its Chinatown ghetto, uh, where it's called Shina Soba. And Shina is a very derogatory term for Chinese. It's like saying chink. I don't know if you have it in Australia, you know, so it's kind of a racially tinted uh, dish, uh, named dish. But when it really takes off is in the post-World War II reconstruction. Like pizza, as a cheap fuel, 
for workers who are rebuilding the country. And then in the 1950s, I believe it's 1956, a man named Momofuku Ando, who is a national hero of Japan, invents instant ramen. And the rest is history. I mean, this is really the invention that the, the Japanese are most proud of. The funny story here, Momofuku Ando is a Chinese man who was born in Taiwan. At the which everyone, <laughs> which everyone seems to forget. So is it Chinese? Is it Japanese? Uh, and then it goes through its own transformations and permutations, just much like pizza. You know, it goes from the corn dish of the poor people into something that's kind of uh, easily industrialized and, you know, it's, it's cheap fuel for workers. Then it becomes sort of fetishized with gourmet additions, with toppings for pizza and different uh, flavorings for ramen, let's say in the 90s. Mm. And then it becomes kind of this part of a hipster, hipster global culture in this artisanal version. So interesting parallel. The extraordinary subtext with it too is is the Japanese relationship with, with, with rice and wheat, uh, which which is complex and changing over time. Which is complex and very dialectical because, in fact, where ramen is what's called a naturalized dish, right? You know, it's acknowledged in Japan that it's a Chinese dish, but it's naturalized for the service that it did for the country in helping rebuild the country. Rice, gohan, cooked rice, on the other hand, is this hollowed cornerstone of washuku, which is this Japanese traditional, supposedly traditional cuisine of rice plus three dishes plus miso soup. And it's it's kind of fetishized as the expression of the Japan, Japanese national self. You know, rice farming is something that's imbued with almost spiritual quality. Mm. But here's a paradox. The Japanese are eating less and less rice every day. It's, it's kind of a catastrophe. You know, the rice farmers uh, have nothing to do because they're heavily subsidized by the government. Uh, they used to be even more because the Japanese palate is very globalized. The Japanese want pizza. In fact, you know, I could easily have argued that currently pizza is a national dish of Japan. Because, you know, literally the Japanese are eating so much more wheat. Uh, and to start with wheat, after the World War II, it was a product of America dumping its surpluses of wheat uh, to Asian country to prevent the Red Scare. It's, know, it's a culinary the, imperialism. The, the communist, <laughs> it's absolutely a culinary imperialism in, in every sense. But this is this is this is again why I say things are complex. You know, one yes. you know you think you know pizza, you think you know ramen, you think you know uh, whatever dish, a hot dog. When you look at the histories, there's race, colonialism, class. You know, you can read everything through food. All of those things, Andrea, in that journey, I, and it takes you to France, and he, and here I would have thought. Uh, there would almost be a, a, a legislated authenticity. If, if there is any culture which preserves itself in all its manifestations, it's French culture. But how, do, how does that wash out in dishes that we would think of as, as being characteristically French? Uh, well, you know, in fact, I start my journey in Paris because not only France kind of perpetuated and invented the idea of a national, explicitly national cuisine, where it didn't exist before. It really gave us the idea of the nation with the French Revolution of 1789, articulating uh, the whole idea of a nation with uh, its own constitution in the name of the people, where before that, 
it's an absolutist kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a babble of different dialects. At the time of the French Revolution, less than 25% of people speak standard French. But the French were very good at creating uh, a soft power asset out of their cuisine, Mm -hmm. starting back in the 19th century. You know, think about all the fancy French, all the fancy chefs at every palace, at every government, you know, from Mexico to Japan, in fact, were French in the 19th century. So it's exporting this idea uh, of cuisine as its soft power. Uh, It's codifying all its recipes, you know, written by chefs like Carême, and later Escoffier. So they're kind of really putting it together on paper and they're saying this is French national cuisine. So my first quest, the first object of my quest was this French dish called pot à feu, which is mean, translates as pot on the fire. And it's basically a, a boiled, boiled dinner. We would call it in the States. I don't know how in Australia. That'll do. Uh, so it's meat, meat, meat and vegetables and broth, but it's imbued with almost mystical quality. You know, fraternité, égalité, uh, all in one cauldron. Equality, fraternity, meat, vegetables, everything, whatever. So I'm interviewing all these French chefs, including, you know, Alain Ducasse, the most famous French chef. And they're like, you know what, can we just move on? <laughs> Suddenly, I'm finding myself in a city that is completely and utterly globalized, just like Tokyo. And all the Parisians are breathlessly telling me, oh, can I tell you about this Bauer burger or a maki roll or a mezcal bar? Oh, this chocolate babka. I mean, they want, it's like global Brooklyn. You know, they want to eat everything like, you know, they don't want to be sort of categorized as this. Yes, they're proud of their cheeses. They're proud of their wines. They're proud of their terroir, like every other country. But, you know, it's been incredibly refreshing to see that the French kind of got off their high horse. And um, they're, they're just like the rest of the world. But that sort of kicks off my journey. And I'm pondering, oh, my God, if even the French have sort of abandoned the idea of a national dish because one restaurant critic was sitting in this bistro and he said, well, Anya, you know, our cuisine got really interesting once we abandoned the idea of the national cuisine. And I'm like, what are you saying? What? Are you really saying this? <laughs> and he's like, whoops. Uh, well, uh, mm, uh, 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 but yes. <laughs> in, in a way too, it's, it's the possibilities of, of what you can put in your mouth is, is one, of the, one of the great revelations and, and wonderful outcomes of, of more globalised culture. It's, I think it's, we all want to eat all these things. It's, it's such, a wonderful, such a wonderful possibility. And it's really interesting the way it ricochets, for instance, uh, you know, the, the, the French have rediscovered their own baguettes and breads but kind of as a part of, you know, this international sourdough trend, you know, mm, like you see mm. global baking, the Japanese uh, are rediscovering miso, for instance. You know, the sales of miso were down. The sales of sake were down. The sales of all these national things were down. But one miso expert in in, uh, in Japan tells me, well, have you heard of this cool chefs like Rene Redzepi of Noma and David Chang, you know, in, in the States? And they're really into fermentation. And we're so proud that they love our fermentation. So we're back into fermentation. And it's miso. It, so it, yeah, our tastes are validated. By, <laughs> yes, by, by uh, presentation, of, yeah, but by success abroad. Take us to Mexico. Mexico is a really fascinating case. So in Mexico, I spent over a month in Oaxaca, in southern Mexico, which is the most uh, 
indigenous in the most multicultural state. Mm -hmm. There are 16 different uh, indigenous groups there, all speaking their own languages. And the main one is Zapotec. And in Oaxaca, I'm looking at mole. And mole is a very complicated stew with over 30 ingredients. And it is said to represent mestizaje. And mestizaje uh, is the mixing of indigenous and European influences, which is basically Mexico's identity. Mm. But that identity is going through a re-evaluation, whereas before it was kind of prestigious to be whiter and more European, and there's been like this assault on indigenous culture from the Spanish colonists. And really, you know, until, until pretty much the 20th century, now it's being revised. So this mole stew has many different forms and many regional variations. It can be green, it can be black, it can be red. But now people are looking more at indigenous versions and how it reflects, you know, the different indigenous identities. And I'm also looking at the maize, at the corn tortilla, which is, you know, I'm sure you know it in Australia. Uh, It's this kind of flat cake uh, of maize that has survived pretty much since uh, its original form, since the pre-Hispanic times. And it's a very arduous process. Uh, You have to prepare corn, you have to add, you have to do this process called nixtamal, which is where you add lime, the lime slack Mm -hmm. to it. And then you soak it, then you send it to the mill, then you make a masa, a dough out of it, and then you shape the tortilla. It's incredibly difficult labor for the women. uh, And it was absolutely not valued. Uh, but again, an interesting, you know, com- talking about complicated um, with NAFTA, with the trade agreement between U.S., Canada and Mexico, the U.S. starts flooding Mexico. Here comes wheat. <laughs> with, no, no, it starts flooding Mexico with uh, GMO contaminated corn for ah. the feed, uh, right? So there's a scare of GMO contamination of Mexican, of Mexican maize and corn. And in Mexico, it's considered a national treasure. All these grassroots movements start to protect Mexican corn and in the process, Mexico's national identity. And this is when you have like this national celebration of corn and, uh, you know, the desire to protect it. With the wheat, I mean, the wheat was brought by uh, the Spanish colonists. And it was important, not just the cash crop, not just as, as an economic engine, but also because of Catholicism, right? Because bread figures in the Holy Communion, right? So if you eat bread, you are Europeanized and you are Christian. So it was a very important part of conversion and of just asserting, you know, these Catholic values. I mean, the interesting duality in what you've discovered is that a search for authenticity in food can actually be a really potent way of getting to some really interesting truths, despite the fact that so much of it elsewhere or in other instances is bound up in in mythologizing and, and marketing. I mean, the two can coexist. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the same thing, what is our identity, especially in the age of globalization, in the age of mm. digital technology? Uh, we feel patriotic about this football team. Today and we feel like very much Australian or American, and then it loses, and then we remember that we had this, you know, other hyphenated identity. It's really so 
transactional. I have this scene that's that's really struck with me. So I'm in Paris and I'm looking for this dish pot a feu and I'm going to a Moroccan butcher in the Moroccan neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's all these people speaking Berber, French, Arabic, and they're all bashing Paris. You know, all oh, the French, they're so soulless, they're so horrible. You know, we really don't have a good time here, blah, blah. And then I ask for pot a feu meats and the butcher, you know, gives me a whole selection, classic selection. And I said, well, no, I want something different because I had a different recipe in mind. And they are like, Madame Anya, c'est pas un vrai pot à feu, but this is not a real pot à feu. Don't you understand French gastronomic <laughs> tradition? And I'm like, okay, so these are people who five minutes ago spoke like absolute outsiders and like hated France and were bashing Paris. And now I'm the outsider, Madame Anya's, you know, with a strange accent. And like, what do I know? Like, don't I know French tradition? So like, Yeah. That's a beautiful summary of the, <laughs> the complexities involved, I think. And, and yeah. you end the book on a, a, well, a very a personal note, I think, and, and a, another highly charged dish, which is borscht. Yes, unfortunately. I mean, I had a different ending in mind, but then the war in Ukraine happened, and I'm Russian. Uh, well, I'm Jewish, and my mom was born in, in Ukraine, uh, in fact, in Odessa, but mm-hmm. lived in Moscow all her life. So we were culturally Russian-speaking Jews, and we considered borscht as uh, not even anyone's national dish. It was something we ate every day. It was like tap water. You know, literally, it was just so ubiquitous. Everyone made it. My grandmother, my best friend's grandmother, you know, grandmother in Uzbekistan, a grandmother in Georgia, uh, Soviet Union was a huge empire. Everyone ate borscht. And then the war broke out, and then Ukrainians said, well, you know, it's actually our dish. And Russians mm. started taunting them, and it, it kind of, you know, there was this, this ugly incidents, like, not as ugly as everything else. But uh, And then finally, Ukrainians got UNESCO to recognize borscht as part of their intangible cultural heritage, uh, and an endangered one because of the war. So the last chapter in the book is me reflecting on how one loses one's identity, because obviously I hate Putin. I hate, you know, the invasion. I'm completely with Ukraine. And in a way, I, I try to decolonize Borsh from myself and in myself and acknowledge its Ukrainianness and read about it, not in Russian, but in Ukrainian, uh, and kind of relinquish my uh, cultural ownership and like my personal connection to it. And it just... Uh, it just showed us, and 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 um, it's been incredible how Ukrainians started posting, you know, all these borscht hashtags, uh, and activists uh, uh, started saying, you know, cook cook with us and be with us. It became an important symbol, an important part of stand with Ukraine movement, uh, and uh, it just shows you the power of a dish to invoke these strong emotions and to create global solidarity, and uh, it also shows us that food unites us. But food, unfortunately, often divides us. And will Ukrainians and Russians ever eat borscht together again? Not for generations. And that is a that is a sadness. Anya, thank you. Thank you so so much for chatting to me. Anya von Bremsen. Uh, and the book is National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History and the Meaning of Home. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.